This is Profiles in Risk. Hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation, and those who work behind the scenes who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot com. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Profiles in Risk. I am your host, Nick Lamparelli. I am very pleased to introduce this morning Juliet Murphy. Juliet is the co-founder and CEO of Flood Map. Everyone knows how much I enjoy talking about flood. This is going to be a great one. Flood Map is a venture-backed startup offering real-time flood mapping and smart flood alerts. Their interactive products aim to improve safety and understanding of flood risk and to minimize flood-related damages very close to my heart. All the way from down under, Australia, Juliet Murphy, welcome. Thank you so much, Nick. What a wonderful introduction. Yeah, it's great to be here on your podcast. I've been like listening and pretty pretty excited to be here, so thanks for having me. Yeah, so you are a world traveler, which is uh, not surprising given the peril uh, that you're focused on, which is flood, which is a global issue. Um, and, uh, you know, being a venture backed startup, you have, you have a lot of pitches you have to make and a lot of investors you have to satisfy and a lot of customers you have to reach. So, uh, I think we, uh, as a global traveler, uh, what's that like? What's it, what's it like to, uh, travel the world in order to, in that kind of stressful environment. I think the last time we talked, like you were literally like jumping from plane to plane and going from place to place. It was hard to pin you down. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like, how would I describe it? It's incredible and uh, an amazing adventure, but yeah, for sure. It gets stressful at times. I think um, actually this year we've been back and forth to the U S three times now and yeah, potentially coming back in January. So yeah, it's always like, an exciting adventure. And uh, yeah, on the last trip, I came for the um, the Intuitech Connect uh, conference in Las Vegas. And that was seriously the most incredible conference I've ever been to in my life. It was an experience. I was, um, I was really sick leading up to the conference. And I'm glad I kind of just made it on the plane, had really bad bronchitis. But you know, you got to got to go and like get to these pitches and like, you know, tell, tell people about flood maps. So I kind of got some cough medicine, like scrambled up as much voice as I could and got on stage <laughs> at the conference and just met the most incredible people. Like, I, yeah, taking away like two big, uh, big kind of learnings from that event was that, yeah, people in insurance are so friendly. Like, you know, for me, not coming from the background of insurance, like the amount of people that I met that were just willing to sit down, have a coffee with me, have a, a lunch with me, like, you know, your colleague, Jim Rice, you know, mm-hmm. so lovely. And, you know, bring me up to speed on, on all the ins and outs of the insurance industry. And the other takeaway would be that insurers really know how to party. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I haven't been in too many other industries, so I wouldn't, uh, I would guess just watching like the Wolf of Wall Street that we're probably not up to finance levels in terms of partying, but yeah, a few, few conference I've gone to, they, they know how to have fun. 
I before we jump into flood map, I, I just want to say I I think you're on to something, and I think part of it has to do with um, even though it's tech, you know, insure tech. I think um, folks that are in the industry, we recognize that the pie is so big, it's so massive that there is not going to be an Uber moment because there cannot be one company that can sort of monopolize everything because it's, it's too vast. Um, just in our peril that we deal with, we're talking um, hundreds of billions of dollars in annual loss when it comes to global yeah. flood. There's not one company. There's not two companies. There's not three companies. It's going to take all the companies in the global ecosystem to kind of challenge um, that particular problem. So I, I think you know, the folks that are friendly to you, I think it's just the realization that we all ha- kind of have to work together, that there's, uh, you know, there are a bunch of solutions out there and we need to ferret them out. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. Like when we're talking about natural catastrophes, like the losses are just getting so big. And I think there's this, this real realization of that within the industry. And like you said, you know, no one wants to monopolize it. No one wants to take on that risk alone. Like it's a team effort. The more you can diversify your portfolio, the better, like share, share the risk around, like it's better for business, you know, completely, completely. And so, yeah. It's an exciting time to be in flooding and in, yeah. in as yes. the oil learn, I'm very passionate about flooding and like helping people. Um, so yeah, I'm sure, sure we'll talk about all of that lots. Well, we're going to start right now. Um, let's go right in flood map. I, I like to give all my guests uh, an opportunity to have a little elevator pitch. So flood map, what is that in your own words? Yeah. So flood map provides predictive flood mapping and alert products for insurers. So we're all about improving safety, improving the customer experience, but also loss prevention for insurers. So, you know, as most of the listeners probably know, um, Flooding is costing insurers globally um, and the economy in general like $50 billion per year, and that's climbing every year. Uh, And most of this is due to the fact that people don't really have much warning time. And if they do have warning time, warnings are very broad. So, you know, like if you um, order a pizza on Friday night from Uber Eats, you can see that pizza coming to your door, you know, like five minutes, and you can see it on the map. But when it comes to an approaching flood event, like a natural disaster, you, you kind of are left in the dark. And so this is why time and time again, like this is why in Hurricane um, Harvey that hit Houston, there were like a million flooded vehicles. But like a car, that's something you can move, right? If you knew that it was happening to you. Completely. And so that's what map is all about. We're about predicting. We have like a rapid technology that we've... Um, we've developed that predicts the floods before it happens and maps them like the Google maps for floods and then gives people personalized and location specific alerts to be able to evacuate safely with their family and take their valuables. Um, And just recently we're sort of, you know, after some conversations with great people like yourself, Nick, we're also looking into how we can help insurers um, on the underwriting space as well with um, flood scenario modeling um, and mapping. Yeah. So that's probably my uh, real, real short elevator pitch. <laughs> no, that's really good. That's really because it's, it's a space that, quite honestly, not a lot of folks are tackling. So uh, let's go through the punch list of questions. Um, yeah, sure. Geographically, where does, where does flood map operate? 
So we operate currently out of out of Australia, but in the the last year or so, we've been getting a lot of interest um, in the US. So exciting times! We're looking to to set up operations there next year. So from a flood map perspective, can flood map handle uh, beyond Australia for real time alerts? For real time alerts, currently we're we're doing some pilots. So we're piloting in um, in Australia and also in Texas at the moment, and then we're focusing on some of the the eastern states. So um, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia are, are next on our pilot list. So yeah, the tech team's currently running a lot of validation and and models in those areas. It will take some time until we can offer the capability across uh, continental U.S., but that's really our our next year plan. Okay, so um, let. Let's go, let's rewind back to the summer. Um, Hurricane Florence hits the Carolinas and causes an immense amount of flooding. Again, uh, two years in a row where uh, a a hurricane makes landfall and it's not the wind that's the problem. It's that the storm stalls and just dumps, you know, 40 to 50 inches of water within a 24, 48 hour period. It doesn't matter where you are, no geographic terrain can handle that. So um, could you walk us through like your tech team? Um, do they do they take an event like Florence and kind of uh, reassemble it to sort of see like, this is this is what we would have done? You know, how, show, explain how, like how your tech team operates and how it validates its work based off of the events that are actually happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you know, take an event like like Florence, what we can do is, you know, um, agencies like the USGS, they have uh, a whole lot of gauged rainfall and river height data uh, and river flow data. So all of that is incredibly useful. So we gather all that data that's occurred, historic data. We also gather um, the terrain data of, you know, the topography. So we build that into our elevation models. And then we're able to, to simulate basically our tech is about two parts. So there's the hydrology. So basically modeling, taking rainfall into our models and then simulating what stream flow would have occurred. So turning that rainfall rate into like a volume per time river flow. So that's the hydrology part. And then we're also looking to turn that river flow uh, into basically an inundation map, you know, that you could see on the ground of where is going to be the flooded areas. And that's the hydraulics part. So that's more dependent on factors like, um, you know, topography, the steepness of the catchment, the roughness of the catchment, talking about, you know, is the coverage grass, is it trees, is it buildings, all of that sort of thing affects like the velocity of water and the flow. So we basically take that data, we put it into our models, and then um, we're able to to validate them against the historical data. So what, um, you know, our predicted flood heights are compared to the historical flood heights that occurred, and also what our uh, inundation maps look like in comparison with the the inundation maps from that event where someone has you know gone out and recorded the observed high water marks and come up with you know the actual inundation that occurred and so then our team is sort of able to validate how our models are performing and with some of our events we're sort of getting you know up near like 90 percent um, accuracy like they're not ever going to be a hundred percent accurate and we know that they're, they're rapid but I think knowing, you know, 80%, 90% accuracy, what might happen is way better knowing that beforehand than knowing 100% after the event, which is sort of what happens now. So, I mean, take, for example, now you look at sort of um, 
Hurricane Florence coming over the Carolinas, like I was sort of on on the NOAA pages and the National Weather Service and looking at like what predictions, what sort of information um, some of the residents had. And in some areas, it was incredibly broad, like, you know, best scenario sort of county warnings, in some cases, statewide warnings, like there was a statewide flash flood warning for North Carolina and for South Carolina. And so if you live in one of these states, you know, and the reality to evacuate is like, well, you know, do I take the two kids? It's nighttime. Do I pack up the pets in the car and leave to get a hotel? Mm, it's the whole state. Like, surely it's not going to affect me. You know, that's the that's the thinking that someone is is faced with. And then the decision to stay, you know, can be logical or, you know, you evacuate but don't necessarily plan that your house will get flooded. And so it's a really hard situation to be in. So that's where something like flood map will come in and maybe, you know, 24 hours before that event, we'll release a, a prediction, a match layer that gives an estimate, a forecast of where will be the flood impacted properties um, and kind of personalized alerts and information for those people like, you know, sandbag locations or evacuation centers. Um, so that's a bit of, bit of a summary of how our tech works and uh, sort of how it's performing currently. Yeah. So right now, I think as an industry, we have, there are some tools where we can do storm surge in, you know, as the storm is approaching, we can run models and get some estimates of where the surge is going to go, but nothing once you get a mile or two inland, there's just mm. nothing that exists. And so you're absolutely right. Um, there, that would be incredibly valuable from a safety perspective. Um, as an ins- you know, quasi-insurer, I'm also very interested in understanding, you know, where's the water going to go? We're right in risks in those areas. So it's, I, I want to know ahead of time, um, you know, where the claims adjusters might need to go, um, you know, which properties mm-hmm. might be affected, uh, who should I proactively reach out to? I had nothing like that, you know? So it was, uh, it, it, it seems immensely valuable. And, and I would concur on the gauge data. We actually use the gauge data to, from an underwriting standpoint. We, wow. um, my, my elevator pitch to, to insurers was Carolina's was actually a very um, a benevolent place. No, benevolent the wrong word. Um, in an optimized place to actually write flood coverage because they don't get hurricanes of the same frequency uh, that Florida gets. Yet it's a it's not a flat landscape like the Gulf. It's it's got terrain. It's got you know mountains and hills and and slopes and uh, things like that. So you can imagine my my horror when year one, as I've been pounding the table, we need to write more business in the Carolinas, Hurricane Florence hits. And I'm like, oh, geez, here we go. But it was the the gauge data was actually very helpful. Like from a storm surge perspective, we use that to justify the output that was coming out of the models. Um, So there, there are a lot of tools that, that are there that haven't been used. And now it seems like you're using them to, to create something that's very valuable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know what, and I get really excited about, um, you know, moving flood map models into the US because what our team is finding is that, um, you know, the US, like the USGS, for example, they are just miles ahead of the way that they handle their data and integrations than we are in Australia. So it's funny, like in some ways, I think we're, we're pretty far ahead, but in some ways, we're like a little bit behind down under. So 
you know, the USGS offers really good APIs for all of this real-time data. So we can hook into real-time data. Like the team has read in real-time data across the, the US for rainfall and for river height and also for tidal gauges. So we've got like sort of, you know, the coastal representation of what's happening with storm surge and tides. We've got the, the inland data coming in in terms of like rainfall and the responding river height. And they've linked that all up to our, our real-time models. So everything is, you know, it's not um, a manual process like it used to be in, in my previous career. It's this rapid process where our models are linked to run instantly as soon as certain rainfall thresholds or river thresholds are triggered. Our models run and they run rapidly, like, you know, a couple of seconds because the data has all been preloaded and and pre-set up and so it's a really exciting time to to be there and also like the elevation data too like you guys have this complete sort of um, publicly available coverage of like 0.5 meter you know resolution uh, digital elevation model which is really pretty high standard like in Australia you know a lot of it our country in the middle of the country is sort of quite you know, desert, sort of not that populated area. And we're working with 30 meter resolution data in some places. So it's really exciting to be working with like this high quality data and to be like putting it to, um, towards an innovation like this, you know, cause I feel like it's almost being wasted. I'm like, wow, there's so much we could do with this data. And, and so that's what we're doing at flood map. Yeah. Will your technology also be able to handle like flash floods? I'm thinking of Elliott city, Maryland, where, uh, within like an hour or two, uh, they got like 12 to 14 inches of rain and it's all, you know, I'll, I'll link some YouTube videos. I've talked about this before and it was like yeah. a, it was like a waterfall going through their downtown area. Um, will yeah. your technology be able to handle those kinds of situations where people have like an hour and yeah. to make a decision? It's so, so scary. And this, we've had the same thing happen here in 2011 in the Lockyer Valley floods. Um, and so we're, we're definitely working on that. I think it's, you know, with flooding, when you're looking at the warning time you have available to, to give, it's always a function of the, the catchment size. So in catchments like that, you know, smaller catchment, they're faster responding because the water has, you know, less, uh, less distance to travel, steeper catchments. Um, so it can be harder to get the warning out. Although, yeah, we're so right now our models are really focused on the more riverine flooding, but we're still working on on flash flooding alerts based on you know that's more hydrology driven. So it's about sort of that rainfall runoff uh, response, and we're certainly looking at what we can do to provide alerts there. Um, and it's going to be a, a case of continual improvement. So we're going to go through a series of pilots and just yeah, check and QA our tech to make sure that it's reliable in, in times of crisis. Um, but yeah, we're going to give everyone as much warning as we can, even if it, we think we can do 30 minutes, you know, 10 minutes, like that's, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. So um, besides the obvious value and need to society, uh, it's still gutsy to start a company. It's still gutsy to step into um, a space where you have to raise money, create a product, sell a product, manage a team, all of that. So go back to before FloodMap even existed. Um, what was the driving force? What Could you talk about the moment where you were like, I need to do this? Um, and, and why? You know, what was, yeah. what, what drove you? What drove you insane? 
Yeah, it's a good story. I um, So my background, as maybe some people have guessed, it's not in insurance. Um, I studied environmental engineering and then I went into water resources engineering, which is, you know, everything like hydrology, hydraulics, uh, flood modeling, all kinds of fun modeling. Uh, and I really, I loved it. So I did that for about 10 years with big global consulting firms um, in Brisbane, Australia, um, also in Calgary in Canada and worked in some projects on um, in Indonesia. So solving sort of hydrological challenges all over the world, dealing with lots of rain and like snow melt. And I, like, I always loved it. I was fascinated, but I think the more driver to start flood map um, on top of just, you know, my professional domain experience, it really came from um, some personal experience. And so in 2011, we had really catastrophic flooding in Brisbane. There was about, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of evacuations, um, over 20,000 homes inundated, uh, you know, billions and billions of damages. Um, and one of my friends, Cheryl, she, you know, her house got flooded and she had no idea that um, her house was even at risk of, of flooding. And to, to sort of help paint the picture, if you can imagine a house, if you know, this is the house and, and this is the peak of the roof, the flood swallowed her house over the peak of her roof. Like she lost tiles off the roof. Like it was unfathomable amount of flooding. Um, and she, you know, she managed to get out safely with her daughter, which is really amazing, but she lost everything that she owned. We went back there to clean up and it was just, you know, a mess of, of mud and, and furniture on top of each other. Like it was like just de total devastation. And she just said, you know, I would have liked a little bit more time to, to save the, some of the things that mattered, like my family photos. We spent kind of, you know, days after that, like, refurbishing her photos trying to restore them and save them from like the mud um and then so anyway recovering from that experience um was kind of that like after after that I moved to Calgary in Canada and it flooded there again in 2013 I felt like it was following me it was kind of bizarre um and so yeah it's like a, a six billion dollar damage event yeah. like five thousand evacuations Five of my friends I took into my house because they had nowhere to go and had, you know, no warning, like people lost everything again. And so I really dug into, you know, all the similarities between these two events were really similar in that like people needed more warning time and they needed a better understanding of, you know, what flooding is, what the floodplain is, where are the affected areas. And it just sort of came to me, you know, like I'd, sort of been developing apps as a bit of a hobby like on my weekend because I'm a huge nerd um a flood nerd <laughs> and like I was like oh we need a flood app it sort of came to me as this this passion project and I sort of started working away on weekends um and it wasn't until you know I was talking to someone from a local government in Brisbane and they were like wow like that's really valuable are you gonna like offer this as a service and I was thinking, man, like a business, I've never thought of starting my own business, but I mean, yeah, that's how it started. Like it really was driven by passion to solve a problem for some people that I really cared about. And I saw them in my opinion, needlessly suffer because whilst, you know, my friend Cheryl was struggling to like evacuate safely with all her things, there were people that I knew in my industry who were in the offices running the flood models to check their houses. And so 
this is just data that should be available to everyone, to the public, you know. Um, but the problem is the models that we run, you know, a lot of them are set up, they run like maybe 18 hours, 24 hours, because they're so computationally intensive. So my whole problem that I was solving was to come up with a model that can run when we need it um, really fast to get that information to the people that it matters. And um, yeah, so I kind of just dived right in. I decided to apply for some accelerator programs to get the initial funding that we needed. And that turned out to be just such an amazing opportunity because I sort of got enough seed funding to, to make the leap and leave my, my full-time professional job and start to build a team. And now it's just, yeah, busy and probably like working harder than I ever have in my life. But I love every moment of it and none of it feels like work because I just, I love what I do. That's fantastic. Um, what is the state of the flood, <clears throat> excuse me, what is the state of the flood insurance market in Australia? So your friend, um, did she have coverage? So she did have insurance, but not flood insurance as it turns out. So there was like some interesting um, policy change following that event because some houses, you know, they were covered for water damage or like, you know, flash flooding, but not riverine flooding. And the policy wording around it was all very confusing. So her payout was denied she didn't get any insurance payout because also she just, you know, no one understands like the details of hydrology and flooding and to choose a policy was very confusing. So, you know, some government sort of stepped in and said that there needed to be reform on um, the wording around flood policy. So now the word flood, if it's in an insurance policy, that encompasses all flood, you know, stormwater, overland flow, flash flooding, riverine flooding. It's just kind of one and the same because it's a, you know, it was a consumer issue. Um, and in, yeah, so in Australia, the insurance uh, market for flooding is a little bit different than the US. We don't have a national flood insurance program. It's all um, covered by private insurers here. So uh, a lot of home policies cover flood by default. There, there are some insurers that have it as kind of an opt out or don't um, you know, don't want to take on the risk and they will exclude it. But most of the insurers here cover flood risk and it's, uh, it's risk-based pricing. So they'll do all the flood hazard modeling and um, work out their kind of portfolio risk and price appropriately to sort of, yeah, almost in some, some sense discourage people to live in really high flood risk areas to sort of, because that's often the root of the problem. Yeah, so I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about flood risk communication because mm. that's that's probably one of the big differences between your country and our country is, yeah, we, we may have some technology tools that might be better. Uh, we do have the National Flood Program, but um, there's still we still have an adverse selection problem. We have um, the National Flood Program partially subsidizes rates, so... Um, when homes do get destroyed, there's, um, there's an incentive to build them back up right, you know, right where it happens. So we get a situation where like 10 or 20% of all of the properties in the national flood program are driving a, you know, Pareto distribution, driving 80% of the claims. Um, so that's a problem. And then, you know, to encourage Folks, just, you know, like your friend in the exact same story, folks like me that are living in areas where, you know, I'm like have three feet of first floor elevation, um, 
I happen to know, you know, that if it rains, it could flood. But if I were an average citizen, I'd probably be like, man, it's ne probably never going to flood here. Right. So what are some of the things we could potentially do to communicate flood risk? I, 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 we struggle with that. It, you know, mm. it, it's the low risk stuff, low risk properties that we really need them to get to buy coverage. And so it's got to oh. be a risk based premium. But, uh, you know, for Americans, you know, we're very independent minded and it's like, I don't want to buy it if I don't need it. And I don't think I need it. So I don't want to buy it. And you can't yeah. make it. So yeah. what are some of the things we can do? You have an engineering background, but have tr been trying to communicate this stuff. How do we communicate flood risk? How do we put that in a position where we can encourage every property owner to buy it, whether it's low risk or high risk? Yeah, oh, 100%, Nick. I think you really like raised a really important topic here because um, it's just something that is so not communicated well, typically. And you know, it's funny, like I'm a flood engineer and I feel like a lot of uh, flood engineering that's done, like it's incre an incredible amount of engineering that goes into working out this, the flood hazard areas through, you know, flood models. But then a lot of it in, you know, if we look at historically has been communicated through um, like hard copy maps, like in Calgary before the 2013 uh, floods, a lot of people had to go to the library to access flood maps on a piece of paper and um you know some some local governments who would commission flood studies from a consultant would put the flood study up on their website on a 180 page pdf report and this is sort of the typical ways that flood data um has been communicated but if you're you know like an everyday citizen for one you don't have time to read a 180 page report you don't have time to like go to a library and access data you know, in hard copy. So there's this real tech change that has happened, you know, in the, in the last 10 years. And I feel like um, the communication of flood data is still kind of catching up to that. So my vision is it's all got to be visual. For one, visual is everything. No one is going to read a huge report. We just want to be able to see interactively, you know, where our house is and like where it is relative to the flood risk. And I think there's some incredible tools out there and technology to be able to do that. I mean, yeah, going back to the Uber example again, like, you know, millennials and I mean, everyone to a certain extent now really expects to consume their data, you know, like mobile on a tablet, like on the web, but they expect, there's an expectation now to consume your, your data digital and like mapping based. So, um, you know, I think like the power of just overlaying some of those flood mapping layers of where are, you know, the, the high risk areas, the low risk areas, the medium risk areas, and then put that on like a, a native, you know, Google interactive map where people can search for their address, interact with it. Cause I think a lot of education is done by, by doing and learning and going through the process. So, you know, if we just have like a mapping dashboard where people can, can look up their house, look up their neighborhood, look up, up the school, the work and like, find out um, about their catchment, you know, where the catchment area is, what gauges are near to them, like what elevation their property is at. Like this all is a tremendous aid in, in helping people understand the risk. And I think something that insurers are really missing out on, like I think there's a really strategic play here that, you know, there's so much insurance that isn't being sold because people don't know that they're even in a flood area. And so like there's this whole like part of the market that you're not accessing because you're not, 
providing that means for education. So it's like such a simple, like, you know, a straightforward thing that we could be doing to improve that, in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So it's, it's something I've been pounding. Again, I generally pound the table a lot. I've been pounding the table on this. So here in the States, uh, because the National Flood Program has essentially monopolized the market, uh, we use their definitions for things. And so for a couple mm-hmm. generations now, you were technically in a flood zone or not in a flood zone. Oh, and my God. This is my, like, pet hate. <laughs> so, so this causes an immense amount of confusion because it's, a, it's binary, right? It's either I'm in a flood zone, therefore there's a high degree of risk associated with that, or I'm clear. I'm not in a flood zone. I am free and clear. Yep. (laughs) I don't have to buy insurance because I am not going to get flooded. And I believe the vast majority of properties in the Houston area during Harvey were in X zones, which are considered not flood zones. Um, It's a huge problem. And so when I go, when I go to conferences and I give presentations or moderate, I always ask, you know, I jokingly ask, how many of you are in a flood zone? And I watch for the hands and I say, well, all the hands should be up because you're all in a flood zone. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's just a matter of degree and we don't communicate that well. So if you're, you know, outside of these 1% probability zones, you feel as though you're free and clear. And to me, um, it's exactly how you described it. There's an opportunity that's being missed. To yeah, to communicate brokers to commute. I feel it's our obligation to educate brokers so that they can educate their customers. And I, I, I think you'll appreciate this. We did a study for a broker. They gave us um, a handful of uh, retail commercial accounts. So it's, it was sort of like a franchise and up in upstate New York and up in upper New England. And we found that um, out of the group, there were, uh, about 20% were um, outside of flood zones that actually had more flood risk than some of the properties that were in flood zones. And there was one in particular that was outside that was by far the worst offender out of everything in their portfolio. And that was considered mm-hmm. outside the flood zone. Um, so it's like examples like that just lead me to believe visually with every quote, with every submission, like we need to educate the brokers and let them know um, you know, it's not what, it's not what you think it is. You know, we know that yeah. you can determine flood zone and not flood zone, but it's, it's particularly different and it's to encourage them to get the stuff, the properties that are outside the flood zone, pull them in. Like we want to see your whole portfolio. Don't send us just the stuff that's in the flood zone. We need to yeah. see everything because it could be worse. So that's been, that's been, I, I've been jumping on what you just described. That's been part of our operational procedure is for every quote, for every submission, we need to either go get the, the remainder of the property schedule, or uh, if we do have it all, we educate them on everything. Here's your whole schedule. Here's the flood zone it's in, but here's our assessment of the risk. Yeah. Oh, that's so powerful. And it's like the best thing that you, you can be doing, like, I mean, yeah, to sort of follow on from what you, you said, the analogy really is that you know, we all buy auto insurance if you drive a car, you know, and like, there's no like, oh, you're safe from an accident and you're not safe from an accident. Therefore, like 
you get insurance. Like we're all at risk. And some of us are, are safer drivers than others. Like I know insurers do the stats and, and put their own pricing on that. But bottom line is you just never know what can happen. And so you buy the insurance and flooding is no different. It's not like inside a flood zone and outside. Like you said, there's this whole spectrum of risk. It's the question is not, am I in or am I out? The question is like, what's my risk? Like, what's my probability? And I think, yeah, that's, you know, in my opinion, maybe a bit of a, a failure in the way that engineers have historically communicated this with the whole, you know, it's a, a one in a hundred flood event and this is, you know, the boundary, like it's, it's not really done favors in sort of aiding in that understanding. So I, I love what you guys are doing and your mandate because it's, it's kind of like um, processes that like that, that are going to help people get more coverage going forward, especially those that are, you know, a lower risk. There's this, pricing balance you need sure the people that are higher risk maybe they do pay slightly higher premiums but they're going to probably get the the benefit a lot more often in terms of frequency but the people lower risk less frequency less premium so therefore it's a no-brainer why wouldn't you have it so that when this freak you know low probability event does happen then you're covered too it's just exactly the same as any other type of insurance in my opinion yeah i, I think product design here in the states is very poor and um, one of the things that I'm, I'm, you know, when I talk to our reinsurers, you know, we, I'm looking out like 10 years and I think part of one of my goals is, you know, product design. And the way I think of this is like, well, we, maybe we should stop considering um, the peril broken up in water damage that occurs inside, you know, from internal um, faults like a pipe breaking or a leak in a roof, uh, a windstorm where the window gets blown out and water gets blown in. Why are we separating that from groundwater flooding? Why don't mm. we just call it water damage and just wrap it up and cover the whole thing? That way when you pitch okay. it and sell it to your customer, yeah. it's you're essentially not saying flood, you're saying water damage. And, yeah, and if, that- they, if, they, if they want to forego it, then they're foregoing the internal water damage and that would be stupid. That's so clever. I love that. Wrap it up because, and then you're like, you're kind of adding a more sort of average layer to the pricing across everyone. Cause everyone maybe is at similar risk of like a pipe burst or whatnot. And then you sort of, you know, spread that cost around a little bit more and, and make it more attractive of a product. So that I think there's like potential for like multi-year policies. Um, you know, if, if it, if it is expensive, right? Figure out a way to, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do, but figure out a way to make it uh, as economical as possible. Um, you know, bundle, bundle it in with other things, like remove the uncertainty, do yeah. what you can to encourage people to actually buy the coverage. Uh, that's, that's sort of where we're heading. And it's, and it's like folks like you that are doing uh, God's work when it comes to <laughs> Uh, the technology component, you know, another thing, you know, before we transition over to the personal questions, um, I don't think this could have been done like five or 10 years ago. I think like we are in like a convergence has occurred where we have the computing power. We have, uh, I think the big data, uh, infrastructure that Google and Facebook and those companies built, you know, 15 years ago has been immensely valuable to to be able to store incredible amounts of data and also retrieve it quickly. 
Um, I, I just think there's like a convergence that's going on that's making the, our ability to communicate flood, to do the types of things you're doing, and then to package it up and sell risk-based products associated with it. I don't think it could have been done five years ago. You know what? I think, yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think this is kind of a product of the fact that it's sort of like multiple, you know, trends converging and in terms of like, it's such a good timing for the the tech we're using a lot of cloud-based technologies, big data, even starting to use machine learning and technologies like this that, you know, weren't really um, mainstream five years ago. And I guess the other thing is that then there's this, the timing is right in terms of like the market opportunity. Um, and then the third fact that natural disasters, flooding is only getting worse. So it's becoming more frequent and more severe and um, more costly every time. I actually just read like a report a couple of days ago by um, Guy Carpenter, I believe, saying that like flood insurance is the next big opportunity and that like, you know, in like 20, 2022, it's going to be 10 times the size of like the, the global cyber insurance market, like at $40 billion in the, the US or something. And so I think um, all those factors combined, like I think it would have been really hard to try and do this solution five or 10 years ago, but that's what's so exciting about 2018. I feel like, um, yeah, there's a lot of cool technology you can use. And I think a lot of, yeah, attitudes are really changing and, and it makes it easier. Yeah. I concur completely. Um, I'm going to transition over and end the podcast with some personal questions that I like to ask all of my guests so they can get to know a little bit more about you. Uh, First one I like to ask is what would you do if you could retire today? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I wish I could retire today. I would, what would I do? You know what? I like, I have a real, um, kind of a real connection with Canada. It's sort of my second home. Um, So what I'd do is go spend the winter in the Canadian Rockies. I'd go ski, a little bit of backcountry, a little bit of resort skiing, some kind of hot trips over the new year, Um, just like soak up the winter. And then the summer, then I'd come, well, the Canadian summer, the Australian winter, but really it's sort of summer here anyway then I'd spend that in Australia and go uh, paragliding and a bit of surfing. So really kind of just have this sort of six months on six months off kind of retirement vacation routine. That'd be nice. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Uh, Let's just retire. Well, let's just end the podcast and just retire. Let's just retire. Uh, Uh, What, what tools or techniques do you find helpful to stay productive and or organized? Uh, lots. That's a, it's a really good question, actually. I, you know what I, um, the simple things I really like. So Gmail, I'm on my, um, Gmail for my emails and just the, like the little labeling system I use. And then I've got like a a recently adopted zero inbox scheme so that everything that comes through, I'm either labeling and filing or responding and and archiving. And I have like just this kind of really, um, some would say OCD filing system for my emails. Um, I know I don't have the same thing with my calendar as we established uh, today, but <laughs> that certainly like really helps me stay productive. <laughs> and then, uh, I need, need any uh, suggestions from the audience on calendar productivity tools. I need advice. 
to change time zones a lot and it's really killing me here. Uh, and then for our team, we use Slack, but I really like that for collaboration. Um, and, oh, we're using Monday for kind of project management and sort of sprint planning. Um, so that helps me kind of stay on track. Yeah. I love that. I'll put those in the show notes. Uh, everyone knows, everyone should, everyone that's listening should know that we love Slack. Um, yeah. I don't, uh, I remember trying to get Tony into Slack and uh, it was like dragging, kicking and screaming. And then one day he's just like, ah, I get it. Yes. Slack mm-hmm. is awesome. And now awesome. we're we're using it uh, internally at my company. Um, we can write commands and have um, servers turned on and off. So, yeah. uh, cause it, you know, cloud-based servers are really expensive and yeah, so yeah. they consume a lot of electricity and you're paying for it. So we have the ability with a Slack and we don't have to go into the server to turn it down. We can just use Slack, use a command and just turn it off. And if someone needs to go in an hour later and turn it on command, turn it back on. It's wow. uh, so now we're thinking like workflow, how do we do more things? How do we assign tasks and other things? So I think we're just scratching the service. I love Slack. Yeah. You should check out Monday. It's great for assigning tasks. Um, putting in like priority due date. Like it's a very, it's a really collaborative PM tool. Uh, it's kind of like Jira, like there's an yeah. at last one, but Monday is like a little bit more simple. It's a good start. Yeah. That's uh, it's coincidental that you bring that up. Cause we're examining that now uh, oh, to try okay. to hand, cause we have so many different projects going on now. It's like, we need a, and that's on the insurance side. So the software development team is already using Jira. They recommended that. We kind of, we looked at that and now we're looking at a few others to see, well, Jira is kind of a software development environment. Is there, is there a product that um, is more general PM that we can use from, for the insurance space? So uh, yeah. And that's why we, we chose Monday because we felt like, you know, we, we do software development, but also we do, just general day-to-day stuff. So it's a bit more kind of all-rounded, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Final question. What books have you found to be influential in your business and or personal lives? It's a a good question. Um, So I'm going to put a like, like disclaimer to this before I answer the question that I do not do as much reading as some other people. Mainly, I don't know, like I get really, really busy and I can be a bit of a doer. So I sort of struggle to find the patience a lot of the time to to sit down. But there's a couple, like if I was to pick um, one that was really influential in my my business life, particularly around like, the you know, part of the catalyst of getting FloodMap off the ground. I read uh, The Torrent by an author called Amanda Gearing. She is a journalist, um, broadcaster, and author. And she did an an investigation to some flooding that occurred in 2011 in Queensland where, you know, it was this one day where about 35 people died. It was awful, really catastrophic. But it was just, like, just crazy and fascinating to read this book that described this this flood that hit, kind of, like, pretty much really similar to, to the Maryland flooding in Ellicott City, where it just hit these people without any warning and and what it was like from their experience on the ground. So for me as a flood engineer, you know, we always look at the models and the hydrology, but it really like put me in these people's shoes and it was very impacting, very harrowing. And I just, you know, it was just cemented this idea that we need to do better. So it was a really, 
a strong motivator. Encourage anyone to read it if you want to sort of find out like uh, what it's like to be on the ground in some of these extreme events. Um, and then, yeah, like in terms of like what's been a good read in, in my personal life, um, I found the book Into, Into Thin Air from, by John Krakauer. That was fascinating to me. It's about, um, you know, the, like one of the missions to climb Everest in, I believe it was 1996, one of the really um, bad years where there were some really bad accidents. But I think what I like about the story is it's sort of something about it that just shows like this human resilience to be able to, to fight through things and like just fight the most extreme conditions and really a bit of a, a kind of lesson that like, you know, willpower can sometimes like overcome extreme events and just like pushing yourself to the limit. I, I find stuff like that really inspiring. Completely. I'm going to put those on the show notes. Those are two great recommendations. And remember, it's not shameful to be a doer. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to show my office cause I'm, I'm uh, redecorating it. So I have books scattered all over the place, but I tell Tony all the time, Tony's always just like, it's okay to buy books and not read yeah. them. And I'm just okay. like, is it, is it, is it okay to spend thousands of dollars on books with the hope of reading them and then get dejected because you're such a doer, you just can't get to them. Yeah. But That's there's awesome. no, there's no shame in being a doer, Juliet. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Makes me feel better. <laughs> um, this is awesome. I'm glad we were fin- finally able to connect. You're doing God's work. It's, uh, you know, just as you're describing the torrent, um, I get the sense that your mission is beyond making money. It's beyond um, you know, scientific accolades. It's about the people. It's about coming up with ways to make society better in one way is to reduce the impact of things to reduce um, our vulnerability to quick acting uh, acts of God that uh, can harm us. So congratulations. You're doing God's work. This has been an awesome conversation. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Yeah. I uh, just hope, hope we get there and hope to continually make a, a difference to people's lives because that's certainly our social mission and I think like working with insurers is the best way that we can reach uh, people on a large scale um, which is yeah it's a really exciting opportunity I think my guest this week has been Juliet Murphy of Floodmap Juliet thanks again no worries Nick thank you okay